Welcome to the Hale Report. My name is Lyric Hughes-Hale, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of EconView. Today is Wednesday, December 2nd. I'm here at the offices of EconView in Chicago, and my guest, Professor Robert J. Gordon, is the Stanley G. Harris Professor of Economics at Northwestern University. He's joining us from his offices in Evanston, Illinois. Our topic is the COVID economy. Robert Gordon is a macroeconomist with a particular interest in unemployment, inflation, and labor productivity, all key issues of our day. His widely lauded book, The Rise and Fall of American Growth, was published by Princeton University Press in 2016. He is a fellow of the Econometric Society, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and the American Economic Association. In 2016, he was named by Bloomberg as one of the 50 most influential people in the world. For more than three decades, he has been a member of the National Bureau of Economic Research's Business Cycle Dating Committee, which determines the start and end dates for recessions in the United States. Bob, welcome to our podcast. Delighted to be here. Uh, Referring to the last line of your biography, I thought I would start out by asking you to date the COVID recession since you're one of the people who helps decide when that began and when it's going to end, are we in a recession right now? Uh, No, we're not. Uh, About dating business cycles, the National Bureau of Economic Research has taken the responsibility for dating business cycles for many decades. The government doesn't want to do it because of the fear of uh, political uh, bias. And so uh, we have a committee that sat down uh, and looked at the economy and clearly uh, the economy reached a peak in February 2020. Uh, our, our responsibility is to provide dates of the peak in the economic activity and the trough, uh, the bottom of economic activity, on both a monthly and a quarterly basis. There was no doubt that the economy reached a peak in February, uh, which was higher than January, but also uh, much higher than March when the economy began to shrink. Uh, then uh, that makes the recession begin in the month after the peak, which is March. So our recession began in March, and uh, we have not determined the date of the trough. But anybody could look at the U.S. economy and see that by virtually every dimension, economic activity uh, reached its trough in April of 2020, only two months after the peak. Uh, So while our committee is very conservative and is going to wait a while longer before declaring that there was a trough in April, there's no doubt that that's when the ultimate determination will be. And thus, we will have had uh, one of the sharpest, but also the shortest recession in U.S. history. Well, hopefully we aren't heading for a double dip. Um, That would be, I think, disastrous. But uh, And hopefully we're just continuing the climb out, especially with the vaccine on the horizon. Um, You know, our subject today is the known and unknowns of the COVID economy, um, which I love, and uh, I love, Bob. And I wanted to ask you, particularly since we've got job figures coming up on Friday, what are the characteristics of this COVID economy in terms of employment, in terms of temporary versus permanent employment, sectoral shifts? Uh, What can you tell us about employment and how that this, this particular episode in economic history might have changed the employment outlook? Well, the best way to think about our economy is to divide up 
artific artificially divide up uh, the American economy into two parts. Uh, one part consists of uh, people like you and me and many other people who are working at home whose incomes have not changed appreciably and who have many reasons why they're not spending the way they used to. For starters, they don't have to commute. Uh, and so they're, sp they're saving all the money they would spend on their automobile expenses, gasoline, uh, public transit fares. And uh, in addition, uh, people like us who are working at home, the half of the economy, as I'll characterize it, working at home, uh, is not spending money as before on restaurants, on concerts, on sporting events, on theater. and all the people who are employed in those areas where we're not spending money, uh, many of them are unemployed. Now, uh, it's very important that we make this distinction between the part of the economy that's kept their jobs and are cutting back on their spending versus those who have lost their jobs and have had their spending temporarily pushed up by very generous fiscal stimulus from the government, uh, which was particularly important uh, in the spring and the summer. Uh, so the part of the economy that has been affected by all of this cutting back on spending by the top half uh, involves a combination of permanent and temporary job losses. The most obvious example of temporary job losses would be those people in businesses that were shut down by government order in the spring, not just restaurants and bars, but things like uh, haircuts and clothing stores. So those people were temporarily unemployed. Then as the clothing stores and the barbershops reopened, uh, those people regained their jobs and the number of those uh, receiving unemployment benefits uh, went down substantially. Uh, in the case of restaurants and bars, as we know, it's been off again, on again, uh, with uh, people constantly being called back to work and then told to go home uh, due to the opening of outdoor dining in the summer, uh, then the opening of indoor dining, followed by the uh, closing of indoor dining in a state like Illinois. Uh, and then finally, the climate uh, set in and made it too cold for outdoor dining. So you've had wait staff in restaurants that may have been uh, in and out of employment several times uh, since all of this began uh, in March. In addition to that, we have uh, many businesses that are uh, either going out of business in the case of retail stores like uh, J.C. Penney or uh, cutting back very substantially on their operations where they no longer need management staff, uh, and that includes. Uh, everything from Walt Disney World theme parks to uh, United and Delta Airlines, uh, those job losses are permanent. So we have a mixture of temporary job losses, which uh, come and go depending on the uh, rules that each state has set for the opening of business uh, versus the more permanent job uh, losses, which of course occur uh, when businesses fail and go out of business, and also when businesses see that it will be a long time measured in months, if not years, before they regain their current level of operation. And then they 
uh, they uh, cut back uh, on job losses that might initially have been temporary, but then they tell people, no, finally, you're gone for good. So those are the uh, senses in which we have a combination of temporary and permanent job losses in the economy. Um, how resilient is the American economy? Will the retail workers who have lost their jobs now go to work for Amazon as online shopping um, continues to grow? Well, first of all, let's look at the totals. Uh, as of October, retail uh, total con personal consumption expenditure, which includes more than retail sales, because it also includes things like housing that are not sold at retail. Uh, Total personal consumption spending in October had recovered so much that it reached 98% of the level in February. Wow. Uh, retail sales themselves have uh, exceeded the level in February for several months. So for the economy as a whole, uh, we have a uh, almost a complete recovery. But there's been a huge change in the mix of uh, expenditures. Uh, as, as you know, there's been an enormous decline in uh, retail expenditures uh, in restaurants and bars and anything that involves people gathering together in social groups. Uh, in addition, uh, we've had a loss of business for major department stores, the ones that have not gone out of business but are hanging on uh, with major declines in sales, including stores like Macy's. Uh, have, of course, not come back and their employment has not come back. There's been a huge shift uh, to uh, e-commerce and online shopping, not only at Amazon, but also at many stores which have more or less successfully uh, induced their, com uh, their customers to buy online. And two that I would think of in that category would be Walmart and Best Buy. Uh, in addition, you've had uh, a major shift in spending as people stay at home and want to uh, improve their houses. Of course, there's been uh, a huge uh, boom in spending on things like laptop computers uh, and other equipment needed for remote learning. Uh, but there's also been uh, very healthy increases in sales at places like Lowe's and Home Depot. Uh, due to the uh, great surge of home improvement activity. So you have this complete mixture of uh, booming sales at Home Depot or Amazon, slumping sales at Macy's, uh, slumping sales at uh, bars and restaurants, uh, and everything in between. And of course, the, the jobs are lost in those not doing well, and the jobs are being created at a great rate at Amazon and other e-commerce retailers. Um, Bob, what about manufacturing employment? There were so many supply chain disruptions in the U.S., in things like, you know, paper towels and, that are still even hard to get, and also in food processing because some of the employees um, became sick. Do you think that this will encourage employ what happened will encourage employers to invest more in automation? The... Decline in manufacturing employment uh, was very severe in uh, April and May when auto plants closed and uh, there was an outbreak of COVID cases in meatpacking plants and we had a temporary shortage of 
uh, pork and chicken that led prices to go up. Uh, but that is uh, temporary and has largely been solved. Uh, I certainly don't notice many uh, shortages in uh, supermarkets anymore, even in the paper products aisles. Uh, so uh, I think manufacturing uh, for most products is back to normal. Uh, we have the auto companies are still struggling to catch up for the lack of production that they had last spring. And as a result, inventories on the uh, parking lots of car dealers are unusually scarce, uh, leading to uh, relatively uh, high prices for cars uh, as uh, we come from fall into winter. Now, it's possible with COVID cases surging in many parts of the country that some parts of manufacturing may have to shut down again. And we would not rule out the possibility that in January and February, we might see not a complete repeat of what happened last April and May, uh, but a partial, uh, a partial repeat. Uh, as to whether the uh, automation will uh, be suddenly uh, jolted upwards from the steady pace of the past, uh, I don't think that there's going to be any uh, sharp change. I think uh, firms are constantly, not just this year, but last year, the year before, and the year before that, evaluating uh, ways of, of replacing employees with machines. Uh, there's nothing special about robots. It's just one type of automation uh, that uh, occurs. But the remarkable thing uh, is that productivity in manufacturing has been practically stagnant for the last seven years. Um, and really? productivity in manufacturing, uh, yes, mm -hmm. worse than the, the economy as a whole uh, after uh, achieving productivity growth of 3% a year in the uh, uh, early part of the post-war era, uh, in the last uh, nine years, average productivity growth for the economy as a whole has been less than 1% per year. Uh, and manufacturing has done even worse than the economy as a whole. So despite all we hear about innovation and uh, revolutionary uh, arrival of robots and artificial intelligence, uh, economists are puzzled by this uh, so-called productivity uh, paradox. It reminds some people of a famous remark made by Nobel Prize winning economist Robert Solo uh, some uh, 33 years ago when he said, we can see the computer age everywhere, but in the productivity statistics. These days we can see uh, internet devices and social networks and uh, robots everywhere but in the productivity statistics. So we have a big puzzle there. So that brings up another puzzle. If productivity is flat, why are profits up and why is the stock market rising? You would think that all of this wouldn't be a reason, you know, for frothiness. Well, how, how do you look at that? Well, profits aren't up. It's the profits are doing better than uh, has been expected. Okay. Uh, and, um, and I think that uh, the story of profits will, will differ for every, uh, every company. The sense in which uh, profits are booming is because analysts expected them to fall substantially in the third quarter uh, based on the slump in the economy that began in April. 
but they didn't slump nearly as much as uh, as was expected. Uh, to some extent, uh, the uh, better than expected behavior of profits uh, is a reflection of the uh, substantial reduction in employment that has uh, occurred uh, in many industries. Uh, again, as we discussed before, much of it uh, temporary. So uh, the stock market, I think, is a much easier uh, question to answer. We have two big reasons why the stock market is booming. The, the one that everybody recognizes is the fact that low interest rates are so low. Right. Uh, so you get nothing on your savings account. You get nothing, virtually nothing on government bonds or municipal bonds. Uh, you get a little bit on corporate bonds, taking some risk. Uh, but then against that is this ebullient stock market that seems to go up and up and up. And so people keep switching money out of their zero interest saving and checking accounts and put it in the stock market so the stock market goes up again. Uh, a second reason for the stock market's uh, behavior, which I expect to continue, uh, has to do with that dual economy I mentioned before. Remember I said that we had uh, the top half of the economy keeping their jobs, keeping their income, but cutting back their spending on commuting, restaurants, bars, concerts, sporting events, and vacations. Uh, so where is all that saving going? Uh, the the economy as a whole reached an extraordinary saving rate of 30% of income in April, and it's been in double uh, double digits, 15, 16, 17% in every month, uh, right up until October. October's saving rate uh, was something like 14%, uh, and that compares to a normal saving rate for the economy of 5, 6, 7%. So saving is twice as much, and that saving has to go somewhere. It sits temporarily in bank accounts. And people sit and look at the bank accounts and compare it with the stock market. And they say, my God, I've got too much in my bank account. I've got to get more money into the stock market. And the stock market goes up uh, some more. All of the historical metrics of price earnings ratios and the so-called Schiller cap E uh, that people look at to say the stock market is overvalued were based on an era of substantially higher interest rates. When interest rates near zero, discount rates on profits uh, escalates substantially. And so what might have seemed a reasonable uh, price-earnings ratio uh, that leads some uh, people to think today's stock market is excessive uh, no longer is excessive because the comparison of interest rates has changed so much. And we know that the stock market looks forward and the Federal Reserve keeps telling us that they're going to keep short-term interest rates near zero for the foreseeable future, measured in years, not in months, and if short-term interest rates are expected to be zero for several years, then long-term rates, which are an average of short-term rates, are going to be very low as well and have no tendency to rise. All of that is an environment in which um, the, the stock market uh, keeps going up. Everybody waits for a dip to buy, but the dips are few and far between. And as soon as the market dips a little bit, it jumps right back up again in the last few days has been a good example of that. Right. So it seems as we get closer to the zero bound, the rules change somewhat. Um, for Yes. And, and uh, that brings us to another topic, which I'll ask my own question. <laughs> and that is, how, how does uh, the role of monetary and fiscal policy change right. in this new economy? Uh, and uh, for monetary policy, they've run out of options. 
there's no longer the ability to reduce interest rates to stimulate the economy during a recession. Uh, there is still the opportunity to buy government bonds and uh, do so-called quantitative easing. And this has been carried out on a massive scale in the first half of 2020 as the uh, Federal Reserve bought up most of the new government debt that the government issued to stimulate the economy through all of those $1,200 checks and extra $600 a week unemployment benefits. So uh, that's monetary policy still able to uh, finance the federal deficit, uh, but no longer through interest rates able to carry through its traditional role of regulating the economy through manipulating interest rates. Fiscal policy uh, is turned on its head because the previous qualification to fiscal stimulus, that it would raise the debt to GDP ratio and push up interest rates and thus crowd out investment, is null and void if the uh, Federal Reserve is keeping interest rates low. There is no crowding out effect. There is no pushing aside of private investment by government spending. Uh, if the Federal Reserve is buying up all that government debt, which it can do without limit. Uh, the, uh, the only thing bringing this party to a close uh, is the possibility of inflation in the future. And we know that inflation has been uh, very tame and uh, we didn't get a visible upsurge of inflation, even with the unemployment rate as low as three and a half percent last year. Uh, so there's no uh, very clear reason why we should get uh, much extra inflation, uh, even if the economy in a year or two uh, finally crawls back to the kind of very tight labor markets that we had uh, last year. And and that really brings me to uh, my next question, which is, if you were advising the next administration, what what would you tell them to do? What do you think a good policy direction would be under these really unusual circumstances? Well, I think you, you have the... Uh, issue that separated the Democrats in the House from the Republicans in the Senate, uh, and that is how generous to be. Uh, and there, I think you need to uh, target the, uh, the, the losers from this double-faced recession. Remember, we've got one group of people who have uh, kept their jobs and are working from home and saving money and are better off financially than they were before. And we have uh, the losers who have lost their jobs either temporarily or permanently, and the small business people who are desperately trying to uh, stay afloat, uh, keeping the restaurants going with takeout food, in the case of bars, uh, not having any income uh, to speak of at all. Uh, so we need a, a targeted fiscal stimulus. Uh, we don't need another $1,200 uh, per person uh, that was given out in April. I think our fiscal stimulus should be focused on uh, extending unemployment benefits, particularly for those in the so-called pandemic unemployment assistance program uh, that brought in those who previously were not eligible for unemployment help, namely gig workers, self-employed workers, and other people who are clearly, uh, clearly suffering. Uh, those unemployment benefits should be extended uh, for at least another half year, if not another full year. 
Uh, remember back in the Obama stimulus of early 2009, uh, the duration of unemployment benefits was extended from the usual 26 weeks to a full two years. And that's what we, they should be thinking of now. Uh, there's been much pressure uh, from the Democrats in the House to provide aid to state and local governments. Uh, and there, uh, I think we should be careful uh, because not all state and local government uh, functions uh, are uh, in the same dire straits. Right. Uh, as, as has been pointed out, uh, most of the decline in spending, remember I said that personal consumption spending is almost back to uh, normal and retail sales are, have more than recovered. Uh, so sales tax revenue uh, has, has not declined much at all. And most services in many states are untaxed entirely, including our state of Illinois, which doesn't tax services. So the uh, sales tax revenue of uh, the states and local governments has not declined as much as you might think. And property tax revenue doesn't decline at all. And that re leaves us with income tax revenue at the state and local level. Uh, but uh, remember that about half of the economy, half of the people working at home are still getting the same income they did before. Uh, so if you look at it carefully, uh, the income of state and local governments uh, has not declined as much as you might think. Uh, if you look at the national income accounts, as I did for October, uh, the total uh, tax receipts of state and local governments, I believe in October, were 96% of what they were in, in February, uh, decently adjusted. Uh, so that leaves particular problem areas which should get direct support. And talk uh, number one on my list would be public transit. Public transit has suffered enormous declines in revenue uh, as people have stayed at home. Uh, and with the alternative being service cuts that would make public transit even less attractive and cause more people to buy cars and create more pollution, uh, I think there's a clear case for the federal government to step in and, and create uh, enough subsidies to make the public transit systems of the nation uh, remain whole, not have an enormous fiscal deficit that would require service cuts. Uh, so that's those are the directions I would look at. Targeted unemployment benefits, targeted state and local aid. Um, another uh, repeat of the payroll protection plan, but aimed at keeping small businesses in, in business. Uh, some people are very opposed to that because you would uh, allow so-called zombie corporations to remain in business. Uh, but I think the right kind of targeting approach could uh, could help those small businesses that we care about, the locally owned restaurants that have been in, in a family for generations and now are facing the apocalypse of having to close just because of a pandemic that was no fault of their own. So if I understand your approach, it would be to support um, those particular sectors and the unemployed until the economy recovers, which you think is it's going to do in the short, in, in fairly short order. Um, and not to do something, take a page from FDR and create, because of, especially because of low interest rates, create massive infrastructure programs, for example, that would hire. Oh, I think, I think infrastructure is a separate issue that should be uh, uh, encouraged, regardless of whether we have a pandemic or not, and should not be put in on a temporary basis. Uh, I think we should have a 
uh, major program of uh, highway repair, bridge repair, uh, support for uh, new public transit uh, facilities and uh, routes where they pass some kind of cost-benefit analysis, which, by the way, the uh, high-speed train in California does not. Right. <laughs> you could fly anybody who wants to go between the Bay Area and Los Angeles uh, for a century on Southwest Airlines uh, for free at the cost of the uh, much-heralded high-speed railway between Los Angeles and San Francisco. The costs of land acquisition are just too great. Uh, the wages of the workers are just too high. The cost of doing high-speed rail in the United States is just totally out of bound of what they were able to accomplish in China. Remember that most of the high-speed rail in China was built uh, 10, 15 years ago uh, when wages were much lower and, the, and China was a much less developed economy. Uh, you just can't engage on a construction project uh, of that magnitude uh, with the kinds of high construction wages and environmental uh, protections that every landowner is going to uh, apply for. Uh, it just takes too long. So uh, uh, that's that's simply not possible. I've, I've thought that uh, there was a, a a benefit cost case could be made for high-speed rail in, in the Northeast between Boston and Washington. Uh, but then if it's going to benefit only a small part of the country, I think a special taxing district should be introduced so that uh, there's a surtax on state and local government uh, t uh, taxes in that region that would benefit from uh, high-speed rail in, in the Northeast. And, and I have a family example to uh, give you about infrastructure that benefits particular people. Uh, in my hometown of Berkeley, California, if you've been there, you'll notice that the BART rapid transit system runs underground in Berkeley, but yeah. it runs above ground in, in Oakland, which is to the south, and Richmond, which is to the north. And there's a reason why uh, the BART underground uh, is underground in Berkeley, but not in the other communities. Uh, and that's because the Berkeley City Council in 1968 voted to put on a temporary surcharge on the Berkeley sales tax to pay for the undergrounding to float bonds, which are paid off over the many years that the citizens benefit. Uh, and I bring that arcane example up because my mother was on the city council and was on a, le was a leader in the, uh, in the effort to convince Berkeley residents that it was a good deal. And boy, think of what a good deal it was. Uh, built at the low cost of the 1960s and benefiting everybody for centuries to come, uh, all with a half, I think all they did was raise the Berkeley sales tax by half a cent, uh, and that was all it took to uh, underground BART. Uh, so that's my example for the Northeast. If they want high-speed rail, let them pay for it. Well, definitely, you know, um, that just underscores my point. What better time with interest rates so low and the ability and so much cash available for bonds and so forth, why wouldn't we embark on a national infrastructure program now and also provide high quality jobs for people at the same time? But anyway, well, you know, that, that was that was one of many failings of the Trump administration that they had uh, that Trump had broadcast uh trillions of dollars of infrastructure spending in the campaign of 2016, uh, but they never got serious. They would have uh, uh, encountered a very receptive uh, 
Democratic House of Representatives after 2018, uh, and the administration could have possibly worked with the House to overcome Republican opposition in the Senate to do a major infrastructure planning, but the administration never took it seriously and never got started on that. Uh, there's a possibility in the new administration uh, that something might happen. So, Bob, what is what are the uh, we've talked about all these knowns and some of the uncertainties. Have have we left out any of the unknowns that uh, concern you? About the oh, about the, the the unknowns are the obvious uh, uncertainty about the vaccines. Uh, how long will it take them to actually be distributed? Will they surmount the uh, low temperature requirements of the Pfizer vaccine? Uh, will the apparatus of American supermarkets, drugstores, pharmacies, uh, medical uh, clinics be up to the task of physically reaching the 330 million people who will have to be vaccinated twice? And uh, what do you do about the large number of people who will refuse to be vaccinated, either because they're against it in principle or because they fear that they might be one of the exceptions that got the virus from the vaccine? Uh, we also don't know how long the vaccine will be uh, uh, will make people immune. Uh, it could uh, there's no proof at the moment that uh, the pandemic couldn't come back in a year or two. So those are all the levels of uncertainty in the realm of uh, medicine and epidemiology, uh, not <clears throat> separately for the economy. The economy's recovery is going to depend heavily on the uh, progress and pace of vaccine-fighting virus. Right. Well, this pandemic has certainly been tragic, but it has also been an enormous natural experiment in economics as well. I'm wondering, um, are you working on a paper on this or do you have a new book in the works? What can we look forward to? to I am still... Book? Yeah. <clears throat> um, my concern is with those numbers that I mentioned a while ago about why productivity growth is so slow in the United States and how we solve the puzzle or paradox of ongoing investment in robots and artificial intelligence uh, with the apparent refusal of the uh, uh, productivity numbers to show it. Now, we have in the United States uh, witnessed in the second and third quarter of 2020 a sharp jump upward in productivity. Uh, and uh, the reason for that is pretty obvious because we've also seen a sharp jump upward in wages. Now, the reason for those two jumps is the same, and that is the, uh, the fact that we have this dual economy with the top people doing well and the bottom people being laid off temporarily or permanently. So we've had a massive shift in employment away from low-income people toward higher-income people, and that means that the average of output per worker in the economy, together with average compensation per worker in the economy, have both lifted for the same reason, that the people who've lost their jobs are relatively low wage. Uh, so that means that the, uh, the productivity data are going to be quite unreliable until we get through uh, the economic effects of the pandemic and the lower income people uh, regain their jobs and we get something more of a normal mix of um, of output and employment in the economy. 
One thing I always wonder about, um, as with GDP, are we measuring things correctly? Are we measuring productivity um, based upon the the um, new technologies that we have? There's, um, I was just reading a paper called the Productivity J Curve, and um, what they're saying is there are intangible outputs um, in terms of software and hardware that we're not really measuring as part of productivity numbers. So, um, and, the, and similarly with uh, GDP, that it might measure a smokestack economy um, very well, but maybe not the kind of economy that has so many intangibles attached to it today. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yes, there's been an enormous amount of work on this uh, mm-hmm. in economics uh, with the uh, issue of measuring internet services that are provided for free. Uh, the Facebook social networks, and uh, uh, also uh, the convenience of e-commerce. So uh, there's no question that we are not measuring uh, the benefits of uh, social networks and other forms of free internet. Uh, The fact that we were able to make the transition in so many occupations to remote uh, schooling, learning, and desk work uh, as a result of the pandemic is the uh, consequence of te- technological innovations like Zoom uh, that we couldn't even dream about uh, 10 or 20 years ago. Uh, so there's been a lot that is going on that's not measured. Uh, that brings us back to the distinction uh, between GDP or productivity, which is output produced per worker hour, uh, and the total welfare of consumers uh, which can differ uh, from uh, from what is produced uh, by the business sector. Uh, in a narrow sense, of course, many of these social network devices that we carry around with us are made in foreign countries and are produced in the GDP of Taiwan or uh, China or South Korea uh, and are not part of our economy at all. Uh, the software that is used on them is created in our economy, but the hardware is not. Uh, But the distinction between uh, GDP production and consumer welfare uh, is an old one. And we can go back to the turn of the last century, around 1900, uh, and imagine the enormous benefits to consumers of the transition from horses to motor cars that did not uh, leave detritus on the streets, uh, the enormous benefit of uh, telegraph and telephone for instantaneous communication, which uh, didn't exist before, and the conquest of infectious diseases, which uh, reduced the rate of infant mortality from 20% of women lost their babies in the first year uh, down to 1% or 2%. So all those things were enormous benefits to consumer welfare. Let's not forget the uh, running water, the bathroom, the flush toilet. Uh, all of them uh, making consumer welfare by 1930 uh, a just a totally different thing than it was in 1880. Uh, and yet much of that uh, was not processed through GDP. Uh, in the case of infectious diseases, um, very little of it because it came from cleaning up the water. Uh, so it's not news that we've had uh, a burst of uh, consumer welfare benefits coming from the Internet. 
that are not measured as part of GDP, because this has been a story in past waves of innovation as well. Uh, what's mysterious is that uh, the after uh, the decade of the 1990s, uh, from 1995 to 2005, uh, the arrival of personal computers and associated software, the transition away from the typewriter and the fax machine to the online office, uh, did uh, create a temporary uh, acceleration of productivity growth that temporarily for about eight to 10 years uh, brought us back to the rates we'd enjoyed earlier in the post-war period. But that was temporary and it's gone away uh, since 2005. We've uh, been in a very low productivity growth regime uh, despite all of the things that we enjoy around us with our various devices. Uh, so uh, my view is that for business production, that big transition away from the typewriter to the computer where everybody's looking at a flat screen was the important transition for business methods. And what we're looking at now is uh, much less important. If you actually look at the number of robots uh, as a percent of uh, total non-residential investment in the United States is still less than 1%. Uh, so all those pictures of snappy-looking robots that look like animals um, are mis very misleading in terms of what kind of investment is actually going on. Well, thank you so much um, for all of your insights. And, and um, I think this has been very eye-opening for a lot of our listeners. And um, it's been wonderful to have you join us today. You also have a um, website where we can find your latest publications. What is the, what's the address of your website? Well, just Google Robert J. Gordon and remember the J uh, because uh, if you go to Robert Gordon, you'll get more than you wanted to know about Robert Gordon University in Scotland. Uh, okay. So just, just remember <laughs> Robert J. Gordon with that middle initial, you'll get right to my website. Okay. Well, thank you for joining me and my guest, Professor Robert J. Gordon, um, uh, Professor of Economics at Northwestern University, and I hope you enjoyed our discussion on productivity and the COVID economy. Thanks so much. And some of it will be repeated in Intermediate Macroeconomics at Northwestern in just uh, five, four weeks. <laughs> uh, maybe I should sign up. Yeah, it's not too late. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you so much, Bob. Thank you, everyone. Bye.